Well, good morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here. Thanks for joining us for the 10 o'clock service today. Um, in about a, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, when you guys are all at the Camino Real having lunch at my usual time of 11.30, know that I'll just be getting started on number three. Um, I implore you to save me some guacamole and, uh, and hope that you just have a great day. Thanks for being here as we continue into this series, the idea of what it means for us to be better together than we ever could be on our own. And, and that's true. Yesterday, I was privileged to be a part of the, the first Making History conference here. It's a family ministry conference hosted by Chase and the team uh, uh, to tell us all how to be better parents. And I was keenly aware of this idea before. I'm even more keenly aware of the idea now about just how fast these moments are going. And I, like you, I know this. I'm going to present a problem to you today, and you're going to resonate with it immediately because you have felt this way before. And the problem is this, you don't mean it. Like you do a lot, but you don't mean it 100% because you, like me, in the last 12 days, 12 months, 12 years, have uttered this sentence. My kids are growing up too fast. Like you think it's happening too quickly. And you say that and you mean it, but you don't mean it all the way. And this is why. You want your kids to grow. Like you say they're growing up too fast, but you want them to grow because like you want words and language to come out of their mouths that make sense so that you understand their thoughts and feelings, right? Like we want them to stay little, but yet we want them to communicate. Well, well, we want them to stay really little, but yet training wheels, boy, that's a hard phase. I do like when they come off. We, we want them to stay little, but once a year when you go to Harpeth Pediatrics like I do and Dr. Huss looks at you and tells you that your kid is in like the 95th percentile, you feel like you've won. It's like, it's like a score on a test and it's like a badge of pride. You're like, yes, we're in the 90th percentile for head circumference. <laughs> and now that one's a little weird, but like for height and growth, you're always wanting it to be up and to the right because we want our kids to stay little, but yet we want them to grow. And growth is what God intended for us. Our middle child, Nora Blake, when she was three years old, she could communicate and tell us all about her thoughts and feelings. She told us flat out that she was not going to use the potty. In fact, she had no intentions of ever using a potty. And we tried every parenting trick that we knew in the book and tried to employ her to do that. And we were so excited about it. And she said, I'm not doing that. We explained to her that if she did, she wouldn't have to wear a diaper anymore, that she could get to wear something else. You know what the something else, I just didn't want to say it out loud. Okay, like get to wear something else. And she said, I don't want to. I want to wear my diaper forever. And we're like, oh my goodness. Now listen, she is nine years old now and in the fourth grade. Trust me, it happened. She can do that and everything is well now. But for years, years, like three, four, five, six, seven years old, she would still say to us every time that she needed to use the restroom, fully potty trained, I promise, mommy, I need to lose the bathroom use just didn't form inside of like her lips and teeth and tongue. So she didn't need to use the bathroom, nor Blake needed to lose the bathroom, which when you sit back and think about it is not unlike what she was actually going to do. However, the idea of losing the bathroom, that's not the right way to say that. And you know, this is true, but we didn't correct her. 
because we wanted our kids to say little and because we thought that that was super cute. Now, six years old saying, I need to lose the bathroom, cute. At 16, that's grounds for being picked on by all of your peers, and let's just be honest, your father too, because it's not going to fly. Like, you need to eventually grow out of that. God designed us to grow, to mature, to, to move past certain things that at one point in our life were cute and manageable, but if we're still doing those same things at adults, they become dysfunctional, and this is why. First Corinthians, you don't have to go there. We're not going to camp out long. In fact, we're going to spend most of our time today in First Peter if you want to get a jump start on turning there. But First Corinthians 13, 11 says this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the, child, the ways of childhood behind me. Be real honest for just a minute. You know somebody who has not put all the ways of childhood behind them. And if you elbowed somebody right now, do not use this sermon as a nonverbal cue to call somebody out in your eyes on me. I don't want any conflict out there. <laughs> Especially for the wives. And this is why I kind of blame you. Because all that stuff we did while we were dating, you thought it was cute and endearing, and then all of a sudden we're going to get married and now it's annoying. <laughs> it's not cool. As we grow, we, we have to put the ways of childhood behind us. You see, we always want to maintain childlike faith, but we're not going to do that with childish disciplines. God's overwhelming plan for your life and my life is that we would grow. In fact, it's in your notes today, growing up in faith while growing together in community, you and I individually growing up in faith while collectively together growing in community is God's design for my life and your life. But just because, just because it's God's design does not mean that it will be easy or simple or obvious for us. In fact, some of the best parts of God's design are challenging and difficult and hard to arrive at and things that we wrestle with. Enter First Peter. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start right in chapter 1. We're going to make our way to chapter 2 today, but we're going to bounce all over Scripture because today we're not just going to talk about the letter that he wrote. We're going to talk about the man that he was. And to do that, we have to bounce over Scripture and to look at his initial moments with Jesus and some of the conversations that he had with Jesus and some of the experiences that he had following Jesus. And I think that we're going to learn something about ourselves today. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, first verse, starting with this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right here, we have a lot of information about what's going on in this book. It's from Peter. His original name was Simon. Jesus changed that like he changes so many things about us. And so we've got Peter, who was originally called Simon, called to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, now helping plant the first church and to sustain and maintain that church of growth. It's from Peter. He's the author of this book. But, but who's the audience of this book? Well, it's the diaspora. That's the scattered group of Christians and Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Peter writes to an already persecuted church, a church that's facing incredible difficulty, a church that because, like he writes this in about 64 AD and 63, 64 AD, and we know that that was the year that Rome was burned. And who did Nero blame? Well, he blamed Christians and the persecutions that they were already enduring, they even amplified in that moment. This is near the end of Peter's life, so we don't just have an author and an audience, but we've also got a timeline. This book was written 
30 plus approximate years after Acts chapter 2 when he preached his first sermon. We're going to address that today. And the early church was born. So after the crucifixion of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus, a church was established in Jesus' name. And 30 plus years later, Peter is still addressing those believers, but they're not all concentrated in Jerusalem anymore. They're spread out all over the region because of persecution. What's a disciple? And we define it here as a growing follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple is not simply a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a growing follower of Jesus Christ because God's design for my life and for your life is that we would grow. Leonard Sweet is an, an author and a theologian and a seminary guy. And if you ever read one of his books, you have to read every page twice. Maybe that was just me because it's so complicated. You really only understand about every seventh word. Um, but this guy is so brilliant. And like 13 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago, I got the chance to hear him speak, and I was so excited, and I went, and there was one illustration that he used, and if it stuck with me for 13 years, it must be a good one. He said that if the church was going to maintain influence and thrive in the next generation, the same as it has for all generations, it would have to learn the art of doing two simultaneous opposite actions that every grade school child knows and learns how to do, swing. You guys push your kids on a swing, right? Oh, we want them to stay little, but goodness gracious, pump your legs so that I don't have to stand here and push you so much. And, and we tell them that. We tell them, hey, pump your legs. But, but honestly, that's not all they have to do. If they're sitting on a swing, pumping their legs back and forth, all it's doing is this, and they're not actually making any momentum. They don't just have to pump their legs. They've actually got to lean back and kick forward at the same time with the same rhythm. You and I have to do that if we're going to grow. We have to lean back on the words that Jesus has said to us and the things that Jesus has done for us and the experiences that we've had as followers of Jesus. We have to lean fully back and rest on this word of God that's been provided to us, but also be ready to kick forward in obedience, doing the things that he's commanded us to do. It's learning the art of leaning back and kicking forward. And if you examine Peter's life, that's just what happened. Fully leaning into the word and the experience that you had with Jesus and kicking forward in obedience every step of the way. There's a moment in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called him. And you can turn there or just pay attention to the words that are on the screens. You don't have to go there today. But in Luke chapter 5, it's his account of Jesus calling his first disciples. Jesus had been teaching around the lake where Peter worked because he was a fisherman. And you know that that was his vocation. And it was a big vocation back then. And so he's been fishing. And when Jesus approaches these fishermen. He says, hey, like, let me sit in the boat and we're going to pull out a little bit from the shore. And from that boat, he sat there and he taught the crowds that had assembled. And then when he was done teaching the crowds, he dismissed them. And he told those fishermen, hey, put out into deep water and let down your nets. This is what Peter's reply was. Um, it's Simon in verse 5. It says, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Like, that's a life verse. That ought to be etched into every single one of our minds as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Like, our automatic response to anything he says ought to be this. Because you say so, I will. And so Simon utters those words to him. And when they had done so, this is what happened. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They went from catching nothing to catching everything 
none of the fish to all of the fish. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now, Simon is marveled at this moment and he's freaking out. He saw this. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. We need to remember that because when we come to Jesus and see how great he is, our very first response is to recognize how sinful we are. And he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, you you know these next words. You can quote them. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Which is weird because back in those days, they didn't use rods and reels and bait. Which I kind of like that because I think it's weird to bait a hook. It's gross. I mean, I'll do it, but I don't like, you know, whatever. Okay, so they actually used nets and they would cast them out and they would pull them in and hope that as all the water filtered out through the little holes in the nets, the fish would stay inside and they would get a big catch. And I'm sitting there as a literal thinker. I'm a concrete learner going, huh, did Simon think they were going to put people inside nets? Because that's weird. Lean back, but kick forward. Because just three years later, Jesus died, Jesus came back to life, Jesus left, and here they are, a confused group of believers, filled up with the Holy Spirit, confusing everyone around them. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter, verse 14, he stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say Peter was a fisherman, a fisher of men. And in verse 40, here's the result. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Talk about a, talk about a full boat load. Not a fish, but a believer is, and I have to think back. I have to understand that in those moments, Peter's reflecting on the words of Jesus and on his experiences with Jesus. He's leaning on the instructions of Jesus and kicking forward into a new era which launched the church. We, we have to learn how to lean back and kick forward. I've often wondered if Some of these 3,000 are among those scattered believers 30 years later who are still following Jesus now, persecuted by Rome, reading Peter's words. There's other moments that I'm convinced Peter had to lean back on and use as fuel to help him do the things that Jesus wanted him to do. In Matthew chapter 14, 28 through 31, it's a very familiar passage of scripture because it's Peter walking on water. And we, we isolate that story because we think it's a great one, but we forget that there's a greater context happening because what's happened in this moment, John the Baptist has died. And so there's a grief because it was a friend and a confidant and a mentor that Peter had looked up to and even followed. And he's gone. But how did he die? He was beheaded. He was beheaded for proclaiming that Jesus was the way. And that's what Peter had been doing along with the other disciples. And so not only was he grieving the loss of his friend, but he had to be scared for his own life. And then Jesus says, the crowds are coming. We're not going to send them home so that they can feed themselves. You're going to give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, we don't have anything to feed them. And he's like, oh, there's some loaves and fishes, only a few. And then Jesus multiplies it and we focus on the miracle but we forget that it was Peter's role along with the other disciples Jesus made a feast but Jesus didn't pass it out 
They had to do all that work. Jesus made a feast, but they had to pick up all of the leftovers. And when Jesus had dismissed the crowd, he went up to pray. He sent his disciples ahead of him in the boat, and they were scared, and they were grieving, and they were physically exhausted. And in the middle of the night, they see a figure walking to them on the water, and they think that it's a ghost. And Jesus says, you know, it's, it's me. Take courage. It's I. And how did Peter respond? Lord, if it's you, verse 28, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And I'm convinced that that was an experience that Peter leaned on. Convinced that that was an experience that that went with him wherever he was going. I'm convinced that 30 years later when he writes in 1 Peter verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Guys, the wind is fierce and the waves are big. I've been there. But, but here's what I'm saying to you. This is how you need to understand. Like you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, let me tell you why. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This, this challenge, this difficulty, this trial, this persecution, what you're going through, church, the waves that are all around you, it's just an opportunity for you to fix your eyes on Jesus so that you don't have to sink. You can actually be grateful for this and you can hold your head high through this because you know that at the end of the day, everything that is happening to you right now serves as nothing else but to prove the genuineness of your faith, not doubt, your faith in Christ. 30 years later, Peter's leaning back on the experiences he had walking on water. How crazy is that with the Lord Jesus Christ? Desperately needing God to pick him up. The wind and the waves overcoming him. 30 years later, he's reminding a church, hey guys, don't focus on the waves. Don't focus on the trial. That just happens to highlight your faith and your belief that God is at work doing something that you may not understand. After Matthew chapter 14, Jesus takes his disciples out in Matthew chapter 16, and he asked them a question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's a reputation question. Jesus is saying, hey, like, what are the rumors about me right now? What, what are people saying? Like, what's going on out there? Put your ears to the ground and tell me what it is that people are saying. And they're like, hey, these are all the, like, you don't want to tell Jesus the bad things that people were saying. So they told him the good things. Hope oh, they say you're like Elijah, Jeremiah, or Isaiah, one of the prophets. This is a good deal. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And that's a real good question. Because it doesn't matter what the world thinks or believe about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your friends in this community think or believe about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your mom or your dad or your spouse believes or thinks about Jesus. It matters what you think and believe and know to be true about Jesus. And so Simon Peter answered that question. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And on that single confession, God built a generation called the church. On Peter saying that Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He was a savior. 30 years later, he's still saying that same sentence and employing other people to say that same sentence because in 1 Peter, he writes to them. He writes to them in verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, through him, that's Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope, although they're being tested, so that your faith and hope, although it's real difficult right now, so that your faith and hope are in God, not in this world. I'm convinced that Peter was leaning back, but not just leaning back. First Peter 1 indicates that he was kicking forward. We've got leaning back questions. What is it that Jesus has said to us? And what is it that Christ is asking from us? Are we leaning back into the word to discover what it says? Because the next part is our kicking forward response. What is my next step? What is our next step as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus? Well, he gives us that. Go in your Bibles, just one chapter over to 1 Peter 2. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice. Therefore, even though you're facing these trials, you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because of that... Because of Christ your Savior, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, plural, that's important, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's a prophetic moment. Pastor Jeff picked this passage right here in 1 Peter chapter 2 um, to be a key passage for this message this day six months to a year ago in a sermon planning. Then Charlottesville. And, and we read this word, rid yourself of all malice and, and we can gain racism as a subsidiary for malice is the Greek word kakia. And the specific definition is this. You'll, you'll be back. Ill will, desire to injure. You literally just want someone else's harm. Wickedness, depravity. Wickedness, this is a clarifying term. Wickedness that is not ashamed to break law. Wickedness that is not ashamed to break a law. How about a foundational law in this country that every man is created equal? Oh, you don't like that one? How about a foundational law in this word that we are all created in the image of God? And, and malice is a willful desire to go against 
that. We can go to the word slander at the end. It's the word katalalia. And it really, it means defamation. We, we know that slander is defamation of someone's character. We might as well insert the word bigotry because you know what's at the core of it. Believing and perpetuating awful lies and stereotypes about someone else. You know, in some ways, we're, we're kind of blurring the lines between bigotry and racism. Both are deplorable sins that, just like all other sins, separate us from God and destroy the possibility of community with one another. Bigotry is the, the prejudice and the ill will that any of us harbor, feel, believe towards another person based on any sort of differences. And to, a, to some degree, we all wrestle with that. And we all deal with something inside of us that is sinful, that propels us to think less of someone else and more of someone else in its place. Racism is, is more than... See, see, racism is when you actively believe in, march for, and fight for a system that will not only allow, but endorse and protect bigotry. That can't be in the church, and here's why. First Peter's letter was to the diaspora. First Peter's letter was to Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. You and I will never rid the world. Scale it back. We'll never rid this country of all of the evils of racism and its bigotry. But by God's power, we better rid the church of it. Because the church of Jesus Christ, according to this letter, according to this word, doesn't allow room for this kind of malice, this kind of deceit, this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of envy, and this kind of slander. It can't. We have to call it sin and understand that Christ died for it. The irony, as if there's anything ironic about this, the, the irony is, is this. Racism supports a, a segregation and, and a system of slavery, social and economic, across the world when the racists and bigots themselves are actually the ones who are enslaved, slaved to their own sin. And Christ died to set us free from that. He, he died to set us free from those feelings. He died to set us free from those stereotypes. He died to set us free from this being present in the life of the church and in a world where there is intense persecution. This place has to be free from that. So, so what do we do to grow in our faith? We, we rid ourselves we rid ourselves of the things that Christ died to separate us from what's next. We, we grow up as followers of Jesus. We become growing followers of Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.2 2 says that we should crave spirit, 
pure spiritual milk. That's the word longing. And what it means is that we would desire, that we would have a, a need for, like a panting, like three days without this word and without this growth, we start to get the shakes because we want it so very badly. How do we do that? Well, we study God's word because in Acts chapter two, it says that that early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, friends, this is the apostles' teaching and I want to live a life that is devoted to this word. I, I want to be it enthralled by it and passionate about it and dedicated to it. I want to indicate my ultimate need for it. How do we do it? Well, we bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to be a community of faith. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says that we carry each other's burdens and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe by carrying one another's burdens for a change, we would fulfill the law of the land that says every single one of us is created equal and depends on every single one of us. And maybe we fulfill the law of this world that says every single one of us is created in the image of God and may need a brother or a sister to come alongside them to help carry them along the way. We would create a system of authenticity and vulnerability in the life of our church because James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that what can happen, you can be healed. I, I, I love that we're launching community groups because it's a way that you might engage in active spiritual growth in your life at this church. This past week, we launched men's and women's Bible studies. And I want to tell you, week one, first question, I'm sitting at the table with two dudes I've never met before, playing spades, making it possible for everybody else to be that vulnerable, to be that authentic, to share what's real and deep and painful in our lives. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of that. You know, I don't have to convince anyone that spiritual growth is important. I just have to tell you how to do it. It's like flossing. No one has to tell you that you need to do it. You just gotta have somebody to show you how and remind you. That's why consistency is an important value in the life of the church. We can't forsake meeting together because it's an opportunity for us to encourage one another and to spur one another on towards good deeds and spiritual growth. You know, we want our kids to stay little, but we're excited when they reach a new milestone. We, we want our kids to stay little, but I kind of want to be a grandparent because I think that would be fun. I, I want spiritual growth, but I don't want all the disciplines that require it. Like, I, I may want community, but I don't want people poking around my business. I want to be a part of a church, but not if I have to come more than one out of every three to five weeks. We cannot desire spiritual growth and shortchange community. We can't want to grow in Christ and shortchange spiritual disciplines. What's next? This is the best part. We're going to rid ourselves of all of those community-destroying sins. We're going to become growing followers of Jesus Christ, and the result is that we would build community and God's church. We talk a lot in the world about accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, but what we really mean is that Jesus makes us acceptable to God. And when you and I grow spiritually, this is what happens. We come to him as living stones being built into a spiritual house. The purpose of me growing spiritually and the purpose of you growing spiritually is so that together we would build a church. 
It's not just so that I would go to the next level of my faith and you would go to the next level of your faith and together we would compare what level each other is on. It's really so that a church, a community, a Christ called out community of faith may exist. You wanna know why? Because Jesus said so. He, he told Peter that on his confession of faith, he wasn't just gonna build a great disciple, he was gonna build an entire church. So if we wanna grow, we say to the Lord Jesus Christ today, because you said so, we will. Because you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Because we know that in this world, when we face trials and persecutions and difficulties of many kinds, we know that the testing of that faith is proven by that difficulty. Because God, we know that you have a plan for us and it's that we would grow and that we would thrive and we would be the church of Jesus Christ in this generation so that others can see how good and loving he truly is. Are you leaning back into this word? What is it that Jesus said? What is it that he did? What is it that he's asking of you? And are you ready to take the next step to move forward as a disciple of Jesus Christ to grow in your faith and better represent him in the world in which we live? Can we pray together? At this time, I wanna invite men and women who are ushers in our church to come forward. This is a part of our worship experience. And as we prepare to give, as we prepare to honor God in this way, here's what we're asking of him. Lord Jesus, would you move in us? Would you speak to us? Would you call us out as your spiritual priesthood, your chosen whole people, your holy nation, who desire nothing more then continue our journey of growth with you. Why? Because we crave it. Oh, Jesus, we want to be a people who desire you. We want to be a people who long for you. And we want that to show in everything we do as you build us up as your church. Lord, help us to make wise growth decisions and equip us with the commitment to follow through. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray blessings on this day, blessings on these gifts, and blessing on the hearts of the people who give them. Amen.